Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Juan Francisco Matamoros, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Monica Costera about her new book, After the Apocalypse, Finding Hope and Organizing. Welcome to the show, Monica. Hello, and thank you very much for inviting me. No, thank you very much for being with us and... If you don't mind, I, I, I wonder if you, if you could begin by telling us about your, yourself, about what you do and where you are from. It's a, a rather long story, a, a, a complicated path, but complicated paths are usually the most interesting. However, I, I think I will, shot, I will cut the, the long story short a little bit. Uh, I'm I'm a sociologist right now, although I've been doing uh, organization studies all my life. Usually, until now, I've been employed at uh, at management faculties in 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 several universities in different countries. Uh, but well, considering everything I've, I've done so far, I, I agree that this is uh, this is more. Uh, a sociological view rather than strictly managerial. And um, my, my preferred method of research is ethnography because it, it, it enables me to experience the, uh, the, the human side of organizing processes and, and to, to try to better understand what people do, uh, what the what they what they what their well motivations and ideas and also feelings and emotions are when they engage in these processes. But against this, of course, I'm also interested in structures and in in the the um, the forms that these interactions take more generally. Oh, great. Uh, very interesting. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean w- when you talk about organizational studies um, for just the general audience? Well, this is a rather broad area of study because traditionally sociology is more interested in, in the large picture, so to say, the, the, the big structures, societies. And... Um, Psychology is, is more interested in the individual, in relationships, in, in small groups, in families, and so on. Organization studies is uh, something in between these, these two. And it can be small or large, but the main, main thing is that we're more interested in, in the what we call meso level, the, the middle ground between the the small picture, the individual, and the big picture, the societal. So, of course, we organization researchers are, are very much um, r- related to anthropologists, anthropologists, cultural anthropologists, and social anthropologists, and and we we work together quite a bit. Uh, so it, it's it's not it's not surprising that the the, the methods that. Uh, quite often are attractive to many qualitative organization researchers are derived from ethnography and, and cultural anthropology. But there are also quantitative organization researchers, and that's another story. They, they try to look for patterns rather than look into the experience. Very, very interesting. And um, I know the, the book, it's even in the title, uh, you mentioned organizing, and... Um, I'd like to ask you how this book came about. Um, how long have you been? Had you been working on it? And yes, how did it come to fruit? Uh, 
sort of speak? Well, in, in more concrete terms, it, it took me a few years, uh, but it's been a rather long way leading to the moment when I collected the material and I, I organized my, my research material and my, my ideas and, 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 and wrote this book. It, it, I think the, the way leading to this moment was, was uh, on, on the one hand, it was uh, a feeling of a loss of agency that many people in the organizations that I've been studying expressed quite explicitly recently. There's been a, a, a lot of talk about, well, hopelessness. The, the times are not are not very encouraging of of thinking bold thoughts or of imagining the the future in, in particularly uh, optimistic terms. And people people are worried, and there were quite many people who who talked about that, and also my students. I was teaching at a management department at that time, and many students were, uh, well, increasingly alarmed by the developments. And this was before the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. So even then there was a feeling that things were not going in the right direction both in Poland and in the UK and in Sweden, when I where I uh, work m- most of the time. So I, I was considering if there is any way of dealing with that, if the, the dynamics that can be perceived are all really so overpowering and leading in a uh, well, sinister direction, frankly. And uh, then I also uh, thought about the, the big picture, the societal picture, inspired by Sigmund Baumann's writing, but also other sociologists. And and this this book started to come together as a as a result of these quite, I'd say, pessimistic, but also some more optimistic thoughts. So it's neither pessimism nor optimism. This book is neither. It's it's something yeah. else. That's um, that's great, and um, I think it's a great way to start discussing uh, the book itself because you mentioned the uh, sort of like lack of hope or what what was being expressed to you. And, uh, and 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 you 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 have it in your title, the apocalypse, and and you mentioned that it has a lot of meaning to it. It's not just an ending; it, it's also uh, possibilities emerging. And and and, and the, in your introduction, you 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 take on stories of hope. You talk about local stories, but also, like you said, different levels of it globally. Uh, you also have uh, what you call levels of interpretation and a narration and metaphor. Could you tell us a bit about that part of the book, please? Yes, of course. The, the, the leading metaphor uh, that I work with in, in this book is, is the metaphor of the sociological apocalypse. And it's, uh, it's a metaphor that is a sort of a continuation of Sigmund Baumann's metaphor of the liquid society and of the the interregnum to to, to Bauman he, he borrowed the metaphor from, from Gramsci and to him the interregnum is a period of unknown length the old system is not working anymore but we don't have a new system yet so it, it's a time in between what anthropologists anthropologists call liminal but Liminality is, is, in this case, it's not part of a process that we know that it will continue and how it will continue. We, we know nothing about what will come, basically. So th- th- therefore, th- th- there is a, a sense of loss. 
and uh, as, a, as a, a sort of continuation of that way of thinking uh, and observing what, what was happening on the organizational level, I came up with a metaphor of the sociological apocalypse where things indeed fall apart and the center does not hold. The structures, the organizational structures that used to hold much of our organized effort and endeavor together, they are falling apart. The, 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 the central social institutions, the big patterns that were once taken for granted, they are also not functional, such as, for example, democracy. For example, the family, there are many such key phenomena from the past that are weaker these days and problematic in in many, many ways. So this is really happening. This is true. This is real. But on the other hand, when you take the metaphor of the apocalypse literally, and the word, the, the word apocalypse is, is, not, is not mine. It came up in my conversations and in, in, in the texts I've been reading as a metaphor of, of uh, our times. The, these are apocalyptic times. So, but if you take the metaphor literally, it is not just about, about dissipation, about uh, dissolution. It is also... It means revelation, the, the, the original, the Greek term. And what I'm suggesting by the, the metaphor of the sociological apocalypse is that when things fall apart, when the, the institutions don't work so good anymore, when structures dissipate, you can see the foundation beneath them which normally is invisible. You cannot see them because institutions are taken for granted. So they are full with the constructions, the social constructions that we we live amongst and that we use in our everyday life. But when these things tumble, we really can see the foundations, what's underneath. And what's underneath is very dark. It's, It's full of violence, of raw power, of all sorts of, of, of terrible things which are frightening. So it's not so strange that people express their hopelessness, their fear, the despair often when seeing all this. However, it's not just that that's present among the rubble. What, what's also there are other things that are normally invisible, and it's the... the, the the golden bits or the pearls, the, the values, the, the, the things that indeed are founding, founding values of many structures and institutions, they are there, but we have to look for them very actively. We have to use a lot of energy to find them. If we don't, we get distracted by all the, the, the chaos that's, uh, that's happening, by, by all the... The, the negative things that we see underneath these these uh, eroding structures. So in this book, I propose to take a good look and try to find these values. And as, as I am an organization theorist, I, I look in that direction, in that area, and try to find the, 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 the values that can help us to organize in a better way. Very interesting, Monica. Now, um, in your book, there's this sort of progression where, where you discuss uh, planting a seed and and later on making it grow, watering it, and seeing it rise. Now, the first part is sowing seeds of hope, and 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 you take on uh, three, let's say, areas of knowledge and for humankind, which is uh, philosophy, sociology, and psychology, and when you discuss these areas, you, you present them, you give an introduction, you take on um, certain thinkers that, that you prefer, so to speak, and, and you also mention them from a personal perspective, sometimes with, even with um, memories of your own. So would you mind telling us about that, about philosophy, sociology, and psychology in relations to what we, you were mentioning, which is hope, imagination, and even love, so to speak? 
Uh, yes, um, I uh, I look for inspiration or for the, the the values, the ideas, the founding ideas that are present in these areas of of human knowledge, philosophy, sociology, and psychology to to find things that can help us to just like you said imagine a better future of organizing and organizations things that can both inspire us to 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 think more more broadly perhaps more boldly about uh, organizational futures but also things that can actually be of very uh, very very concrete use to us things that we can we can uh, more or less immediately apply in uh, in everyday organi- organizational um, processes so um, yes uh, that that's why I, I believe that this is a way of sowing the seeds for the future to find some some things that are really foundational or that can be foundational and that are already there it's nothing completely new we don't need to 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 invent something we, we don't don't need to innovate <laughs> this is the uh, the buzzword that today defines the life of everyone, including researchers, innovation, everybody should be innovative. Well, why? We, we don't have to. We can reuse, recycle some very good old ideas and adapt them, align them with, with uh, the current dynamics, the current needs of, of society. And some of them are indeed uh, derived from Greek philosophy, uh, like Aristotle's uh, ideas of the good life uh, and they can be put into practice quite directly or Immanuel Kant or uh, yeah um, some some things that are combined both old and new in in that sense Monica what what role does personal construct theory play in all of this that you're mentioning well, that's the, the, the concrete seed, the, the most practical uh, of, of them all. You, you, you don't need to have to be a constructionist. Um, I am not one. But uh, what I have sort of selected as possible seeds among these ideas are uh, things that can, can be put to, so to say, to, to work more or less immediately something that that can help us to look at the same phenomena or the same things in organizations but with a slightly different angle from a slightly different angle and to understand and and that's what what uh, constructionism is is really good for i believe is that it enables us to understand that people actually have different constructs and still we can communicate and there is no it's not risky to communicate with people with different constructs quite the opposite it can help us to 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 be uh, a bit more multi i'd say multi uh, dimensional perhaps or multifaceted in in our uh, work together in our collaboration collaboration so we don't need to talk or to focus only on groups that we agree with completely the so-called bubbles that are so popular nowadays it's 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 a it's a way of communicating that doesn't enrich us and i think this uh, this uh, personal construct psychology helps us to think it as relatively safe to, well yeah safe to communicate with people who are different who think differently very interesting monica now moving on to the second chapter make make it grow uh personally one of my favorites because uh, f- like you said, from a sociological perspective, mainly you tackle on um, other things such as poetry, poetics, art, and music. 
Uh, could you tell us a bit about that part? What, what role do these things play in, in the general discussion of your book? Well, I'm, I'm very partial to, to poetry myself. I, I read much poetry. I, I, I you like write it. it as well, right? I write it too. Nice. I, I think I've always, I've more or less always, <laughs> liked, enjoyed poetry. But I don't think it's it's just a, an aesthetic thing. I, I think it's 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 a way, well, both poetry, music, and and creative writing. It's it's a, it's a way of expressing something that is not linear, something that is difficult to express because it's not fully there yet. You you start a poem, or that's the way I write poetry. I I, I start a poem with uh, a certain energy in me and I let the energy flow through me so I don't know how it will end. Uh, I don't know really where it will take me, although I have a certain idea what it is going to be about. So I think that, and, and following many poets that I, I refer to in this chapter and also some other thinkers, I believe that this mode of expression can be used for endeavoring to go beyond the limitations of the current forms, of the current thought forms, the, the, the gestalt, to trying to, without risking uh, an entropic mode of 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 mind the, without risking to become chaotic and completely lost, which is not good, in, especially not in, in a time of sociological apocalypse where everything is falling apart and people are indeed, they are so scared that they are looking for something very solid, even if this solidity is morbid. And if, if, even if it's reactionary and, and super conservative, Sigmund Baumann writes about these phenomena in his last book the uh, called retrotopia people turn back to forms that are dead completely dead but they do it because they are scared of chaos of nothingness of meaninglessness so that's very very uh, disturbing we we, sh we cannot engage in things that are meaningless the human being is is made uh, as a creature looking actively for meaning. And poetry is a, a sort of a bridge, a bridge that one can construct on the uncertain, the unknown, and yet try to express something relevant, something that is meaningful. And I think music is, is pretty much the same, although yeah, I, I was going to say that, yes. Yeah. I don't compose music myself, but I love listening to it. And I have many researcher friends who uh, who not just compose music for the sake of enjoyment, but also who use music to explore the ethnogra their ethnographic material. It, it's really fascinating. I think it's very interesting how you start discussing that in, a, in the general discussion of of um, a sociological apocalypse and and the importance that something such as poetry or music could play in all of that, um, and then you also discuss art in general and 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 the um, difficulty of defining art. Um, what what are your thoughts in general on art? Because you mentioned poetry, you mentioned music, but but you also speak on art not necessarily something separate from music or poetry because it's part of the same but but could you tell us a bit about that please well there there is a the whole a whole area in organization studies which is dedicated to well different inspirations by and through art uh, indeed there is a, a a business school that is dedicated to or that is some, somehow somehow very pretty much 
engaged in this perspective. And it's the Stockholm School of Economics. They Very actually use art to move people to to think beyond the linear, to to think beyond the the, the purely hyper rational, which is quite unusual and and really interesting. And it has some very, very good results too. So this is a a vibrant area of organization and and yes, indeed, management studies that is, has been, uh, I think, developing since at least the 1990s. Uh, But this is not quite exactly this practical use or not only this practical use that I have in mind. Uh, in, in, in this chapter, I'm, I'm more interested in the ways that art can open up perspectives that it, it, its tendency to explore the, the boundaries of what we know that's that's really interesting you you also you you're talking about um your dialogue with for example not only organizational studies but business school correct me if i'm wrong which is like different areas of knowledge different fields that i wouldn't assume um would would enter in dialogue with things such as like we said poetry art or like you have it on your chapter number three, which is named Water Daily, like history, mythical stories, archetypes, religion. Um, how does that, well, first, is it difficult for you to discuss these things with such an audience, for example, business, people involved in business and in, in managing businesses or like, entrepreneurship even how, how does that f- fit how do you mm, establish that dialogue well that, that depends of course it depends on on the the readiness and the, the openness of these institutions in, in some cases and, and this this might sound rather rather harsh but well that's how I see it. In some cases, m- many of these institutions are into retrotopic okay. thoughts and ideas. They, they, they want to preserve something or they want to recreate something that, that doesn't work anymore or that doesn't work for the good. Um, in, in that part, I believe it's in the history part, where, where you talk about your work regarding the history of the employee is that could you tell us a bit about that because i find it to be really interesting um making a history of the employee it seems um like you came across really interesting things and i would um like you to talk a little bit about that if you don't mind yes the 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 most important author and in research uh, for me uh, in that respect has been Roy Jack uh, yeah. who's, uh, who's who's written uh, a, a really fascinating book manufacturing the employee where he discusses the the history of of uh, being an employee and, and he, he's also very generally interested in in history of uh, organizational forms and what relevance it has for for, for the present and also possibly for the future. So he claims something that that I know is counterintuitive and, and there are even very widely spread sayings, I think, in all languages claiming that humanity learns nothing from history. And of course, there is something to it. We, we tend to, as humanity, we tend to repeat the same mistakes again and again. But according to Roy Jacques, history does offer many valuable lessons. And sometimes if we put our minds to it, we do learn from it. <laughs> so history is an open book and we, we can try to, to read it and to, to learn from it. And even though these, these books are, so to say, open for everyone to use, some are left less use than others, even less use than others, such as, for example, the history of 
of the employee of employment and that history can be really illuminating especially nowadays where there is a lot of uh, of of injustice of 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 different social differences these are growing between the rich and the poor and there is much oppression and the the forms of employment are if you are in a historic mind and and if you know about history not just recent history but long-term history some of the forms which are presented to us as being so exquisitely modern such as the uber like forms of employment there, there's nothing new about them. They go back to feudalism. And there's wow. some good research to prove that and to show that. The, these are just, you know, reused old forms of oppression, really. So if we can do that, we can also reuse some old forms of liberation, of emancipation. History is, is full of lessons that lead in all possible directions. We don't need to invent everything anew all the time. And the reason why I have put it uh, in the third chapter as as Water Daily is that I think that it is advisable to first have a, a, a more open mind with the use of poetry, to have, a, first of all, a sense of direction thanks to philosophy and to philosophizing, to problematizing society, and then go into this this active mode of looking for for a historical material or mythical material, stories, stories of how people imagine the world, and we can reimagine it thanks to these stories. That, that's really interesting, Monica. I think it's also really relatable to to that part where you discuss uh, mythical stories. And could you tell us a little bit of what you mean about organizational myth-making? Well, well, myth is a, a way, a, a narrative way, as, as you as an anthropologist uh, are so very familiar with, uh, of making sense with reality, of connecting the mundane to to the more than mundane, to the beyond mundane, to the significant. And it it can be used in in many ways in the sacred sphere, but also in the everyday sphere, where we, we are looking, human beings are creatures actively looking for meaning, actively creating meaning. And then when we talk about things that are larger than our well, day-to-day dealings, we sometimes use mythical language. Very interesting. I think it's um, mythical stories tell you beyond the here and the now, just as much as religion, which is something that you also mentioned. Um, So could you tell us the following? What is uh, really uh, religion good for? Uh, What's its relationship with hope and organizing? Well, um, I'd like to go back to a a category that um, has been recently put into use more often, uh, but in a way that I find less inspiring. I mean, archetypes. Uh, really interesting that which you took from Carl Jung is that correct yes I, I took I took them for Carl Jung and uh, I also I also uh, took them from some more classical researchers who were interested in how archetypes work in organizations such as Yanis Gabriel or or Martin Bowles um, or Mary Jo Hatch uh, and it the 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 archetype connected with the religious sphere, with the religious sensibility, such as Jung saw it, is not a thing. It's not a construct. It's an empty space. So in, in Jung's terms, an archetype is, is like a riverbed, an empty riverbed, ready to hold 
images, ideas, energies, uh, inspirations, art, or, well, all sorts of things. And it's, it's, a, it's an empty space that connects humanity. It helps us to make sense of, of the big things. It connects us to, to the, the, the larger than our individual selves or even our societies as they currently are. So it, as, as such... They offer no sense of direction. They are neither good or bad, or they are both. They, they have the potential of, of leading us into very constructive directions or into complete darkness. It should be remembered that Adolf Hitler were actively using archetypical language. So this is not something that we can just use as a tool. It's no tool. It's much bigger than that. It's, it's not a rule book. It's beyond that in many ways. And it's too dangerous to be used as a rule book because it can lead us astray. Archetypes have to, have to be respected and not managed. They have to be, they cannot even be used or invoked because we, we never know where, where they lead us, really. But we should be made aware of their existence and be gently and respectfully aware of how they the, the the currents can be followed and how we can how we can uh, well uh, coexist with these huge dynamics these these the gigantic energies and this is exactly where I think religion can be useful for organizing processes and i don't mean a concrete religion one or the other uh, definitely not I, i'm not i'm not uh, uh, suggesting that that one religion has better answers than another but what i'm suggesting is that uh, religion can help us to handle or to keep our distance to these archetypes while not forfeiting their potential, which is indeed something very valuable. Really interesting answer, Monica. Now, moving on to the fourth chapter, which is also very interesting, uh, perhaps also some of my favorite, because you discuss so many things that I wouldn't have imagine unless I, I read your book now you you talk about architecture you talk about radical politics and you talk about alternative organizations now starting with architecture um like i said in the other questions how, how does this fit into the overall picture what is it why do you um take on that subject such as architecture such as uh space how does that relate I think we rediscovered space during the pandemic, and and space is is it's about architecture, it's about place, but it's also about our bodies, embodiment, and our presence, which, as we both know, is crucial in an anthropologist's work. Ethnography is very embodied. It's it's about the authority of an ethnographer is about presence, being there, being in the field. So architecture is, is a way of encapsulating this presence somehow. And it, it is the language of institutions and structures, looking at the architecture of different organizations, but such as Dvorayano, for example, does. It's her lovely work of organizational architecture, how it suggests and how it also mobilizes certain energies in, in different organizations, the, 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 the buildings which they occupy. But also, it, it, it is a, a, a sort of a signal from from the heart of the culture, the organization's culture, what is this organization really about? So if we have, if we have a cozy building like I'm working in right now, I'm extremely happy to be there, a, a, an old building where, where with, with real 
thick walls where we can sit and work in peace, where students can meet and discuss in peace. Uh, it's it's a building made for academia. The 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 Faculty of Sociology uh, at the University of Warsaw has uh, is is very lucky to have this building. It's very different, and it it sends different signals, and it it makes different things possible from the open space office, which has become so popular at many universities. The the cold aluminium and steel and the with glass walls where you cannot, it's everything is transparent, but at the, at the same time, there is no light in this transparency. It's a cold transparency. That's really, really interesting, Monica. You, you also, I believe it's in that part of the book you mentioned. Um, I believe it's a, it's a particular book, but it's like different types of architectural movements that are not necessarily. Um, glamorous architecture, but more of a down-to-earth situations emerging out of catastrophes, even like um, earthquakes in Japan. I believe you mentioned this church that was built out of paper. Correct me if I'm wrong. So is that part of what you define as hopeful uh, architecture? Yes, an architecture that that let, lets human processes, embodied processes, to go on to develop that gives shelter and that gives a sense of belonging too because architecture does this of course it is it is not a surprise that architecture serves as a tool for branding in modern management but it also can give a sense of shelter of belongingness of togetherness which is the the more caring function potential function. I, I believe that architecture is, is really important and it's it's unfortunately not so very often discussed in the context of, of organizing and management. It, and it should be. It, it should be, I think. Yes, I think this is one of the, in my case, this is one of the things I found most interesting, you positing that. Um, would that also be part of radical politics, just that that stands on architecture, that approach on space and objects and, and bodies? Like, would that also be part of what you consider radical politics or alternative organizations? Yes, absolutely. To, to, to change the world for, for, for the better, to, the, there is a... a, 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 a a beautiful old Jewish tradition known as Tikkun Olam. It's, it's working to make the world a better place. And it's both an idea and a, a, a frame of mind, but it, it's also about very, very concrete things. And it can be about small things. You, you don't have to change the whole world. <laughs> At the same time, you, you, can, you can work with detail, with with the the small things like for example in in one of the uh, the the stories that one of my interviewees told me some time ago uh, they were made to move into a, an open space office and everybody was very unhappy about that because they they had their their sort of microcosmos in in their offices they knew where every, everything was they, it was easy for them to organize their, their work. And now they have to, had to move into a, a, an open space, a, a big, cold open space with a lot, lot of air conditioning, uh, very loud, lots of noise, very, very hard to focus. And what they did, they, they could not change it. It was before the pandemic. Uh, they could not change it. They tried to... to uh, to negotiate with management, but they weren't successful. In the end, what they did was putting a lot of potted plants on their desks. Oh, beautiful. And sort of hiding behind these plants, but also <laughs> being able to breathe because uh, plants bring oxygen. <laughs> that's, um, that seems really interesting. It seems like strategies human beings uh, emerge with or not necessarily improvise, but come come up with them as the situations evolve. And in, in, in some part of your book, you take on Michel Desertot, I believe, 
not necessarily in this part, but I, I think it relates to an invention in the everyday life of people, how uh, living itself is a form of art where you improvise, where you create, where, and um, I see some of that in when you discuss these examples and, and the people's stories. Uh, also, when you discuss alternative organization, you talk about this alienation. And what what do you mean by that? And, and what are you talking about when, when you mention that? Hmm. It's it's my my last uh, ethnographic project, uh, a big one. My my new one concerns the work of artists. It's just started recently in January, but the one before that lasted for uh, uh, eight years. Yeah, and uh, it was conducted in two countries in in England and in Poland, in in small organizations, so-called alternative organizations. There is a, a whole literature around this term, especially uh, I would recommend uh, Martin Parker's writings. He, he's really good about these, e- explaining how, how this works. It's organizations on the margins of the system. And that's, that's what I focused on in my study. I selected some organizations that defined themselves as not working within the capitalist system, but in in the margins or even outside of the capitalist system. And usually these were uh, cooperatives, not, not very interesting necessarily formally cooperatives because in, in Poland it's, it's extremely difficult to have the legal structure of a cooperative. But functionally they, they worked as, as cooperatives with democratic co-ownership, with democratic management and, and so on. Uh, and and uh, I, I was fortunate to observe quite a few interesting structurization processes going on there. The, these were usually new organizations. They weren't really certain where they were heading. They weren't using old stable structures, but sort of trying to recycle old ones into something new that fitted them better. Uh, under the circumstances. And one of these dynamics I discussed with two of my colleagues who are also interested in alternative organizations, uh, Jerzy Kociatkiewicz and Martin Parker. And we, we wrote a paper about it and we called these processes disalienation because these organizations worked actively towards uh, the abolishment of work alienation. Some of them were founded on purpose with that very aim in mind to to give people an opportunity to work without alienation and they were more or less successful that there were a few things that sort of coincided in all these organizations and we brought we were trying to bring it up in in a paper or to present it as as a possible dynamics leading in that direction because we believed that if sociologically alienation is a process, then there has to be another process leading in the other direction. And these organizations illustrate how this process can unravel. Really, that's really interesting. And I guess it connects with that last part of your book that's um, a, a praise of the margins. It's, the, it's a coda where you speak on the importance of margins and in structures, in organizations, and systems. Oh, yes. Um, tell us a bit about that. That seems to be really interesting. And I, I believe it relates a lot to the circumstances, for example, of an apocalypse. Like w- what's going on in the margins when something like that is happening? What are the answers to that apocalypse or the possibilities? Could you, Would you mind telling us a bit about that, please? Yes, of course. Uh, the, the, the book... Uh, as we we said before, it is a sort of a, uh, a quest, maybe even a path, leading from a, a sense of hopelessness, as expressed by many of my interviewees and uh, as feared by myself, uh, through the the finding or looking for, focusing on values that are still there that can be found among the the rubble of the the failing system. And in, in the end, I have found something that brought me hope, 
as an author, and I wanted to share it with my readers. And this something I found on, on the margins. And I, I also discovered the, the importance of margins as such. It's margins that, that bring real hope, which is not just about wishful thinking or, or, uh, or having uh, uh, the head in the clouds, but which is very realistic because these organizations actually work. They employ people. They, they give people a possibility to earn a living, a decent living. That They pay people a living wage in the north of England, which has lots of problems, and, and in Poland. And all the organizations that I have studied are alive today after the pandemic. Even though I, I stopped writing this book, it was finished before the pandemic in, in 2019, I think, uh, or even a bit earlier than that. Anyway... They have survived. They are really resilient. They are very, very practical. So this is a, a, maybe a, a promise of some kind stabil, of, of stabilization, but around something better, a, a tikkunolam in practice. Very interesting in that sense. Would you say that, not always, but would you say that hope is in the margins? Yes, I would say that. Yes. That's great. Now, um, what are you working on now, currently? Well, the, several, several things. Uh, one is the, the ethnographic study, which I just recently started, uh, dedicated to the work of artists, because I, I I'm with, was being very curious about what they mean when they talk about work. And this is what I'm exploring. It's really fascinating and ongoing. Uh, and I'm, I'm also writing several things, uh, and I have a, a, a book idea which I'm developing uh, right now. Uh, it will become a book proposal, uh, hopefully a bit later this month, uh, dedicated to the university, what, what it is, what it is for, but not just in terms of a, a critique, well, more, more in the sense of this... Uh, sociological apocalypse if, if if it's indeed falling apart then let's look at what's left in the foundations if there is something valuable left there and what it can be used for to 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 build a better university in the future hopefully in in the future not far away <laughs> <laughs> well monica that, that sounds great i i've taken a lot of your time and i thank you for being on the show i enjoyed this conversation and I, I want you to take care thank you very much thank you very much indeed it was lovely to talk to you <laughs>